Welcome to Soil Health Lab's Plug and Plant Podcast, engaging farmers, ranchers, and researchers in the pursuit of healthy, functioning soils. Hello, everybody. I am Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And this is the third episode in the Plug and Plant Podcast. And today we're going to go through the ending portion or the second half of our interview with Dr. Mark Liebig. Yep. If you'll remember, we uh, we interviewed him uh, just the day before the shutdown in um, the shutdown in October 2013, the government shutdown. In fact, we were driving up through Indiana, Illinois, and then started getting emails and calls from markets like, oh, I don't know if we're going to be able to make it. <laughs> and we drove into Bismarck, North Dakota, interviewed Mark in the morning, and that afternoon they were told to pack up and go home. So, you know, from South Carolina to North Dakota, and we nearly missed him. I'm so glad we, we, we got to speak to him. So that was, that was one thing. <laughs> Do you want another uh, little bit of trivia about Mark? Give it to me, Buzz. Uh, uh, Mark, I hope you like this. Uh, I hope you can handle this. But Mark's wife actually is a soil um, quality specialist who works with the NRCS in Bismarck, North Dakota. So Mandan is is just outside of Bismarck. And uh, I guess they're kind of a, a soil health power couple. Yeah, no joke. So, um, yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. Well, maybe we can get her on here next. Well, maybe we could <laughs> do that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but that whole Bismarck area, we talk about it in the end a little bit, but the, the, the Bismarck and Burley County, if you look online, um, uh, that is a, a, a one of the centers for soil health across the country. And that's a confluence of different things. Jay Fuhrer is the uh, district conservationist there, and He's been such a visionary, um, and he gets invited all over the world to to speak. And so they have all of these pieces in place. Gabe Brown is from Bismarck, or at least from Burley County. And so they have a number of different farmers, NRCS workers, ARS, all kind of working in concert. And, and it's it's a pretty cool thing to watch when you go out there. Yeah, those are some pretty big names. I, I know specifically in our... Uh, integrated systems video series with Doug Zeke. He mentions both of those guys right. in North Dakota. Right, exactly. Yeah. So Doug Zeke is from South Dakota, Walworth, South Dakota, and you know he, in a sense, got his soil edu- health education when he went up to Bismarck, North Dakota. So that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. I hope you guys learned something from this and enjoyed the podcast. We talked about the role of dynamic cropping systems and that you are seeing more indicators of sustainability, better organic matter, better moisture infiltration, uh, better soil microbial biomass in the soil. Um, Now let's sort of go to the next level. How do cover crops play in Mm. this role of diversity and increasing this soil health? Well, I think I think they have a role to play. I mean, cover crops obviously are, are part of that sort of 
conservation agriculture approach. Yes. I mean, they're they're providing, you know, they're extending the the, the cover, you know, getting yes. green cover on the ground, and um, and, and there, there's a lot of different ways we can use those yeah. in our cropping systems. I mean, it depends on the goals of the farmer. I mean, do they need nutritious forage? They, do they need to assimilate excess, you know, nutrients in the soil? Do they need to deal with a pest or disease issue? I mean, there's all kinds of different ways. So, in a sense, to, design the cover crops you're talking about. Right, exactly. You, you design them to address the resource concern or opportunity that presents yourself. So the, so, the, so the farmer has this decision to make of what to plant and when to plant based upon those, those needs. Yes. Okay. Now, when we look at soil health and, and cover crops, yep. there's a lot of work elsewhere that points towards, yes, you're going to you know, improve aggregation, you're going to improve infiltration rates, you're going to minimize or lessen soil erosion because right. you're, you're basically interrupting raindrop impact, right? Right. Okay. right. And so, so it's, it's, that's a good thing in terms of protecting the soil resource. Um, so I, I think that, you know, at least for the Great Plains, Northern Great Plains, there's a lot of research that is, is, shows that cover crops have a promising long-term effect, but we don't have the, the the research on the ground, or we have the research on the ground, but not the results yet to okay. to really to I guess validate that yes. that they've seen in other locations. Yeah. But it, but the the outcomes are in other places are certainly encouraging. I guess. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, let me ask you something else. Cover crop and cover crop diversity. I know that there are some, you know, just about every researcher I have spoken to right, right now regardless of whether they're looking at sort of nitrogen balances, nitrogen fixation, nitrogen scavenging, organic matter, residue management, uh, soil water, mm -hmm. cover crop seems to, they, they always come back to the practical application of that in the field as cover cropping. Right, uh, I'm right. interested in this diversity debate because I believe there's a debate uh, on how, how much diversity there is. There's, I think, a school of thought I don't know if I'm catching you off guard. There's a school of thought that says, you know, get your legume, get one or two brassicas, get one or two grasses and put it out there. But I come out here and I see 21 and 28 <laughs> way mixes. <laughs> what uh, obviously seed cost is a constraint sure. in this. Right. But um, can you comment perhaps on when you increase diversity to this? And, you know, I've been in fields where we've seen uh, I, I've, I've counted at least 10, 20, 10, 15 different species. Wow. Comment on that, or can you comment on the role of diversity that we, you know, we can add diversity in, in a very short space of time with cover crops by making these mixes? And is there a debate? It's a long I, question. I, no, I think there, there is a debate. But, but, but you can kind of see the principle behind that. I mean, yes. if you're utilizing different crops in the mix, they'll be able to, 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 to I guess, capture different niches. Yes. Right? Right. Okay? Yes. And then those niches could be any number of things. That could be rooting depth. Those could be, you know, plant architecture within the mix. Okay? Yes. Um, it could be uh, different flowering times. Got it me. could be differences in nutritional quality. Right. Okay. There, there could be different. I mean, the list goes on and on. And so, you know, by by including 
a number of different crops that have different attributes. Okay, you're you're working to to uh, to fill as many of those niches as possible. possible yeah. you know, just as an example, you know, we, we have we we use a. Um, it's not that complex anymore. A seven-way mix yes. in one of our long-term yeah. studies. Yeah, so that's not <laughs> you know, seven-way like, mix. Was I was like, oh, that, 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 that was so <laughs> 2010, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but but you know what we've that's another done? Big bang theory. Yeah. Joke, <laughs> Soil nerd joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sorry. But but what what we did is that we looked at those those seven crops as occupying uh, each a unique niche, and yes. so. All right, so you've got got kind of a root crop. So we've right. got you know we've got a uh, purple top tournament. Yes. Okay, and then you've got a warm season legume and a cool season legume. Yeah. Okay, and then you have a warm season broadleaf yes. and a cool season broadleaf. So that's like I think sunflower and canola or something. Got like it. That. Got it. And then you've got a warm season grass and a cool season grass. Right. Yeah. Okay. And so going back to my you know comments about variable weather conditions in the Great Plains. Okay. You, th you if you put that in the mix, we know Something's something is going to grow. I got it. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And so when we come back and you know, we we plant that in late May, early June, and we come back to harvest that biomass either through an animal or we we take it and we you know cut it up for haylage in you know late July, early right. August. We know something's going to be there, right? Because right. we've covered our bases. We didn't put all of our eggs in the basket of, oh, it's going to be a warm season summer, and so that's yep. what we're going to put all our emphasis, you know. And so, so in a sense, that goes back even managing your cover crops. There's a little bit of risk management attached to it. Absolutely. Yeah, so. Okay, yeah, absolutely. that's that's an interesting perspective. Well, um, we. We're so, uh, in this society right now, there's so much annual agriculture. But there's this, I think there's this movement or the sensitivity towards going back to perennial agriculture. Mm, 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 Talk mm. to me about the role of perennials in cropping systems over here. Or in agriculture, let's, let's back off. Back and off. Perennials yeah. in agricultural systems. I know Altieri talked about perennials and, and annuals mixed uh, so give, give us a little bit more of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can give you a perspective from some of the things that we've seen on the soils. And, yep. and, and we've done work with a number of perennial grasses here, and we've worked with alfalfa Got as it. well. And one thing that we've observed through our research is that you consistently see increases in soil carbon and nitrogen. Now, that what's unique is that sometimes that increase is near the surface, but sometimes, such as like with switchgrass, mm -hmm. those increases can be deeper in the soil profile. And okay. so that, that, that's really unique because then, you know, the, how the soil functions with the environment um, uh, is, is affected about where that carbon is, I guess, is being allocated yeah. by that particular perennial. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and unpack that for me, soil carbon, uh, you know, one of the things I've learned through this trip is that about 40% of the soil's, the, the plant's photosynthetic energy goes towards these carbon exudates in the soil. Yeah. So will you tell me, unpack a little bit what kind of carbon we're finding? Because in my mind, when I think of carbon, I often just think of the, the, the dying, the dead, and the very dead in the soil organic matter. But we've also got water extractable carbon... 
in in the poor spaces and things like that would you would you unpack that a little bit more for me yeah well can perhaps a little bit I know, okay. on that on that the depth distribution issue yes. near surface is roots and rhizo deposits you could the majority of their roots are going to be near surface anyway okay. and then you roots. also have a, a residue effect as well okay. as that decomposes right. and becomes well, what we call particulate organic matter i guess small yes. bits of, of mm -hmm. residue that then can be occluded within aggregates and then just really becomes sequestered carbon right, right, you know, right. time um, you know, deeper down in the profile, it's it's roots as well with switchgrass, but you also have, as you pointed out, these these exudates, those rising deposits yeah. that contribute to that. They may be a, more of a a labile type of carbon, yes. easily mineralizable by 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 microorganisms within within the rhizosphere. But um, you know, the thing is, is that is that carbon gets allocated lower in the profile. Yes. It's less likely to turn up as CO2 back okay. into the atmosphere. Got it. Okay, all right, and that, that gets back to how soil is functioning with the environment um, in that, you know, if you're, if you're able to put that down deeper right. in the profile, there's a higher chance it's gonna stay there. Got it, yeah. got it. Because so. your disturbance is gonna be, especially with these farmers, it's gonna be fairly much on the first couple of inches right, or one right. or two inches, yeah. Near, near that surface, you know, where it's warmer, okay, yeah. where you have higher rates of mineralization okay. and so forth, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I've heard certainly in uh, wooded areas that um, fungal biomass yeah. uh, plays a major, major part in carbon storage. Right. And I, I don't know if you guys have seen that in your mycorrhizal fungi and things like that. It's a great Great question for Chris Nichols. Okay. She'll be able to address that since that's her, her bailiwick. But it absolutely bailiwick. makes sense because it, you're looking at material that has different chemical composition that tends to favor the growth of fungi yes. in your surface. Yes. And so that they become, a, I think, a more predominant um, a player in the microbial biomass and carbon cycling. Okay, well, that's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Yeah. Well, well and, and let me look at my next question over here. Oh, that's, that's a great question. But uh, before I forget, you know, I, th I think this goes back to the paradigm we have in our heads. Perhaps you and I might have grown up with this paradigm that, that soil is a medium to grow plants, um, which tends to, to give it a, a, a kind of a sterile look. It's like a factory. You put your inputs in and take your outputs mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we don't really pay attention to it's just a sort of an inert matrix mm -hmm. but what you're talking about is very much more a dynamic a symbiotic interconnected system right 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 so so you know we, we look at it, it soils more broadly yes. and that is certainly you know, the, the cornerstone component of being, you know, biomass production, food, feed, and fiber, and so forth. But yeah. there's all these other ecosystem services that come into play, you know, filtering water, cycling nutrients, providing a habitat yeah. for, for a wide diversity of, of organisms. Um, it's quantifying those ecosystem services and their contribution over time is, is really the, the, the big challenge. And how our, how our conservation practices contribute to those larger services because it's 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 um, it, it, our our agricultural lands are 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 benefiting or can be the detriment of right. you know those uh, yeah. practices that affect those all those different services right right well talking about dynamic living ecosystems uh, you know chris horton 
when when we were talking, it talked about you know we started with the forty year, forty years ago we had the no till revolution. Mm -hmm, now mm -hmm. we're going to uh, sort of diverse diverse cover crops, and he calls that uber no till. But I think we can call this uber uber no till when you start throwing animals into uh, that mix. Yeah, yeah. Unpack yeah. that a little bit more for me. Yeah, the the, the integrated crop livestock right. system yeah, yeah because yeah. i guess in our sort of um uh what's the um uh, uh, the science um where we put everything in silos oh compartmentalizing yeah. different components yeah. so uh, you know yeah. the livestock guys don't talk to the crop guys uh, yeah, in universities right. and stuff like that so i i interrupted you but in our reductionist scientific approaches often we miss you know, we'll have the crop guys working on something and the livestock guys working on something. Have you done any work on livestock and cropping systems together? Mixing them together. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Well, it it's something we've been looking at for about 15 years okay. now. Started something in 1999. And um, we were interested in a lot of different questions. You know, how well could the cattle perform yes. on these systems? Um, you know, uh, what was the crop production like? And also, how was the soil responding to, to, to being, you know, to having these crops grazed? And, yeah. and the, the system that we used was a, a winter swathed, uh, swathed forages and then grazing them in swaths over the course of the winter. And so there's a lot of questions about having animals out on the ground in the fall, you know, and whether it's gonna cause compaction and so on yeah. and so forth. And, and what we found, we made measurements over nine years, yes. and um, and what we found is that really, the, and we were looking at residue treatments and, and frequency of cattle traffic and so yes. forth, and we, we found that for the most part, there's really no net negative effects on near surface properties. Yes. Now that 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 was not really a very sexy result, you know. You yep. set out your treatments, you hope to see differences. We yep. didn't see that, but w what the, the the real interesting work that we found that is that we did we did this integrative assessment of soil quality using um, it's called the Soil Management Assessment Framework. Good. It's a it's a scoring system it's developed yep. by Susan Andrews. It's a wonderful tool to understand you know sort of a, a broader effects of, of uh, treatments on a range of soil properties. Mm -hmm. But what we found is that our, our, our SMAF scores, and I'm using the acronym there, our SMAF scores for integrated system were not different from our perennial grass pasture. Okay. Which, that's what we were holding up as sort of our ideal Standard. soil condition. Right, yeah. exactly. And so what we found is that, hey, this is great. We're able to maintain a condition we consider to be ideal. Okay. And, and that, that, was, uh, that was, I guess, a, a, a good news for soil health. Significant finding. Yeah. Any grazing systems that you found particularly effective? Mm. I, I've heard of mob grazing, and I know Ray Archuleta just loves mob grazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we haven't done research on okay. mob grazing here. Okay, just just yet. Okay. so I can't can't speak to that unfortunately. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I uh, I hope I find someone who who mob grazes. I know I've I've seen it in. I've seen it in effect not only um, on Gabe Brown's farm, but I've also seen someone in South Carolina who mob grazes chickens. Oh, mob grazes! Oh, <laughs> so fantastic! Chicken tractors, yeah, that's pretty cool. Oh, fantastic! And then they they use they use those uh, once the chicken tractors have gone, you know, they've got cows, goats, donkeys. Donkeys are their pasture ornaments. 
and they've even got pigs that then use the benefits of the the grazing. So, oh my gosh! Anyway, that's great. <laughs> so, all right. Um, there's a lot of concern in this whole idea of agriculture and, and, and climate change. Mm -hmm. Part of your work is about climate change. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about what you've been doing in that arena. Yeah, well, um, been evaluating greenhouse gas balance in, in grazing systems, in dryland cropping systems, and uh, uh, it's uh, you know quantifying the gas fluxes, not just when it's warm and convenient like now, but also yeah. doing it in the winter, which is really important because yeah. there are some gases that uh, that uh, are emitted during the winter time when temperature gets right close to to near zero. You know, you got to be out there and measure your nitrous oxide That's flux so. over here at zero Kelvin, right? <laughs> Can sometimes see like it, <laughs> yeah. but. Um, but it, 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 the, the work that we've done here, I guess, contributes to, 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 to um, a larger body of work yes. uh, across the country and really across the world in understanding how our different agricultural systems sort of, I guess, can uh, contribute or, or mitigate, I guess, um, uh, anticip anticipated climate change. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and so, you know, what we you know hope to be able to to, to use this information that's very site specific yes. in, a, in, a, in a broader context to be able to make some recommendations. Right. Now, we've learned um, enough to be able to I guess make a few generalizations because I mean climate change is one of those things where you know there's an adaptation component and there's also a mitigation component. Yes, and um, and some of the things that we've already been talking about kind of address. Both of those, and and that's being you know improving your soil management, yes, and increasing your crop diversity, right? Okay, and 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 you know what those two things do is that you know if 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 the systems are applied appropriately to soil climate you know conditions in a particular locale, you can do both. You can you know increase your organic carbon. All right, sequester that carbon. Yeah. Okay, that's a mitigating effect. Mm -hmm. You can also improve your nitrogen use efficiency. Yes. Okay, that is also that's mitigating. A big deal. That's a big deal. Absolutely, we appreciate that. Is that just because of the GHG effect of an, an, um, nitrous oxide when it comes up? Right. Okay. So you're you're looking at something that's what about 300 times that in terms of you know um, right. the heat trapping capacity of the CO2. So you really focus on that N2O yeah. and and keeping the nitrogen out of the atmosphere and either in the soil or in the plant or in the animal. Where it's right? supposed Where to it's be, supposed right? Where it's supposed to be. Immobilized right. until it's ready. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that, that's, um, that's pretty cool. Tell me, what would farming, I mean, sounds like, I looked at some um, sort of global balances and there's more carbon in soils than there is in the atmosphere mm -hmm. and the above ground forests together globally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for the potential of farming and even me and my own back garden? What does that mean for the potential if we were all to go ahead and apply these simple practices because they're actually simple rather than complex? What would that mean in terms of our global carbon dioxide storage in the atmosphere? Mm. 
<laughs> that that's a complex question, Buzz, and one one that has. I, I need a single answer. I know you do, because <laughs> there's all these interacting factors. Right. I mean, yes, you can you can change your your management to sequester more carbon, yeah. but then we have to overlay the effect of weather and warming temperatures yeah. and the effect on mineralization right. and what's so what's the net easy. balance. Yes. You know, I think I think what we have to think about is is if you if you apply management that moves us on the trajectory of increasing soil organic matter, which is so critical I and mean, such a foundational component, because once you start increasing that, then you see all the benefits to biophysical components that, with enough time, is going to improve your production because yeah. of the available water right. capacity, larger microbial biomass, and so forth. Yeah. Okay, and it also is going to make your your soil a bit more, I guess, resilient yes. to external stresses. Got it. Okay, so that comes back to now it's an adaptation yes. attribute because now you're, 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 you're creating a soil environment that's, that's going to provide you a little bit more resilience, a little more buffer to deal Two with Two or three those. more days of moisture, which might make, make, make all the difference. Right, right. right. Yeah. Okay, Absolutely. Yeah. What's the work that... Uh, that you're doing in assessing soil health so that it might m be something that in the future farmers can use? Uh, this is going to be really disappointing, Buzz, because <laughs> it's almost social science is the way it is. The work I've done in the past yeah. with assessing soil health, yes. um, and I, I've looked at all kinds of different ways, from the standard laboratory tests to yeah. the soil quality test yeah. kit and, and right. other measurements. And what I've found is that the first thing you want to do when you're assessing soil health is talk to the farmer yeah. first. Because often they know what soils are good and bad. They yes. may not know why, but they right. know where they're at. And that, that, that might be your, your first iteration or you know, jumping off point for doing other assessments. In fact, the, the work that I did way back when for my PhD found that farmers, their perceptions of their soils, the, the attributes of their soils, were correct or nearly correct 75% of the time. Okay. You know? So, so the so social science aspect. It's the social, but, but it shows that, that you had, it was, it was a very important first iteration in understanding what's going on on the farm is, is just to talk to them. Yeah. You know, and then, and then after that, then you can, you can strategize your assessment so that you do things that become increasingly more costly or time intensive yes. so that when you get to the end, then you're doing the ones that we're really comfortable with. Yeah. You know, the stuff in the lab that gets you the, the part per million yeah. of, of whatever. Excellent. You know, yeah. you know, so so that, that um, you know, that's one aspect. Of it. And this is really unscientific of me to suggest, but I think we need to dig a hole every now and again to sort of reorient our, ourselves and our senses to what's going on in the soil. I mean, you can appreciate this, you've seen others do it, because what you see, what you feel, what you smell And sometimes is, what you taste. And sometimes what you taste, be careful what you do with that, but right, <laughs> can tell you a tremendous about, yeah. about what's going on in the soil, and it could also guide what assessments you might want to follow up with. So anytime I go to the field, you, you bring that sharpshooter. You yep. dig a hole and you see what's going on. Well, as a matter of fact, you know, when I was out on uh, Dave Brandt's farm in Ohio, I have yes. a picture of him in his, uh, he had a gator, or, you know, one of these four wheelers, and he had his sharpshooter with him and he'd stop and he'd say, 
pick it up. So yeah, that seems to be, I guess a lot of soil health assessment is going to be very site specific. Yeah. And uh, those, the, 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 the innovators are the ones who are able to sort of assess that, I guess, based on their senses as well as what their crops are doing. Right, yeah. right. And, and, and also following it up with quantifiable indicators. I yep. mean, pulling sure. samples and sending them into the lab, Organic you got to have man. that. Yeah. You bet, you yeah. bet, because it, that gives you the number you need to, to quantify a condition. And provided you can go back to the same spot a few years later, then, you know, methods are the same. You can be able to look at, at yeah. where your, what your trajectory is yeah. for your system. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So. All right. Well, you know, um, this is a question, I guess, when I started seeing this and hearing this, I, I don't yet understand the full history of the soil health movement, but it seems like there were different epicenters. One, I would say, was somewhere in the Piedmont of North Carolina. Mm -hmm. But I think another epicenter of soil health was here in, in North Dakota. Uh, tell me about how that evolved and and why the emphasis well i guess it was at extremes over here but what is north dakota's influence on the whole soil health movement mm -hmm. that's a good question i think i think there's a number of convergent influences yeah that, that come into play no, no single one being necessarily more important right um, but you know first you have to look to the farmers and ranchers yeah in the region and, and their creativity Yes. to be able to adapt these principles on their farms that, that makes sense for them. Yes. Um, certainly you have to look to our conservation organizations, NRCS, our soil conservation districts, other conservation orga organizations in the state and the region that um, they very much have, um, they've embraced the soil health principles in their message to, to producers. Um, and did that early on, you know, yeah. you know, we think back, what, late 80s, early 90s, you know, so yeah. really, and then they were yeah. right on board with that. And then I think that our research institutions, you know, NDSU and ARS, I think we have perhaps a, a role to play in, in, in quantifying some of these changes, you know, and, and, and make, yeah, I guess providing the science to, to, to back up some of the observations that, that we've seen. Um, is um, so so it's 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 a number of converging influences. When I when I think to this lab, it's you know we've been here for over a hundred years right. now, and and if you we've always been a lab that's been focused on natural resource issues, right. and you know whether it was the tree windbreaks or grazing systems or cropping systems or mine, mineland reclamation research or climate change or integrated systems or what have you. The soil was sort of a common denominator in all of that. And, and so I, I think that, you know, at this lab, there's sort of a historical momentum that comes from four generations of previous science that contribute to some degree to things that are going on today yeah. you know and 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 as for you know today and our staff i think we i, I think we're we're, un we're unique in that we have skills that lend themselves well yeah. to understanding soil health and a scientific um, yeah. you know perspective and i i think also that we're we're willing to 
take what we know and find and translate it in a way that is is understandable and seems to resonate with producers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's pretty good because it seems certainly what I saw in Burley County three years yeah. ago that uh, you've got, you've got some producers that are on board with this. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. I didn't see any of the. Or I, I saw the conservation, you know, people like Jay Fuhrer facilitated, but it was the farmers, I think, who spoke to the other farmers. You know, the, the one instant where two farmers from North Carolina, before they got home, they had ordered their cover crop seed. <laughs> to me, that was a powerful message. Oh, absolutely. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, I just love being actually back back in, in this part of the world. Um. I've got a couple of other questions, sure, but we've, sure. we've, we've covered so much. Your advice to a farmer, um, I'm going to be, first of all, I'm going to say, you know, that's all, all very well in your part of the world, but you don't understand how my soils work. I've got to do this to them. I've got to turn them over all the time. <laughs> um, and, and all those principles of soil health don't really work in my area. Hmm. I'm recalcitrant now. Your advice to the farmer who might view this whole idea of soil health with, with a certain level of skepticism. Mm. Wow. Well, I, I think we have to look to the future and what, what our future conditions might be like for, for production. And, and how important being adaptable to variable conditions is, is going to be. And, and that adaptability, you know, um, I think that there's an inherent aspect of it that uh, comes from um, having a, a, a strong and resilient soil resource. And so it, with... <sighs> Explain strong and resilient for me. Yeah, so it's, you know, you're looking at, 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 at a soil that can buffer shocks, yes. okay? It can deal with, with, with droughts or extreme precipitation events and still be able to, to continue to, to function, yes. okay? If, if, if we're dealing with a, you know, a anticipated future that is going to be dealing with more extremes, why wouldn't you want to be begin managing in a way that is going to promote, I guess, a soil condition that's going to be able to better handle that, okay? Yeah. And, and um, yeah, it, it's, it's a tough sell, Buzz, I know, because money really drives a, a lot of decisions in, in, in a, lot of, a lot of, you know, it's, it's easy to think about your agricultural landscape as a, as a factory, you know, yes. the, the inputs and the soil is just there as a repository to be able to hold up the plants upright and get the nutrients to them and that's that. But, but um, soil does so much more than that. All the other services that are important and may not be important within the time span of a particular growing season, but will become clear over the period of a decade or more that if, if, if the management is, 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 I guess, working to, to create an improved resource, right. you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to, it's going to ex express itself through better functioning soil. Better so. functioning soil. So better functioning by supplying nutrients to the plant, supplying water to the plant. Yes, Those are the functions exactly. that 
farmers care about. Climate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, keep keeping the, the the water where it lands. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything else we needed to talk about, or you wanted to talk about? With uh, let's stop right there. Okay. It's eleven forty-five. All right, and rolling. Right. Is there any of those questions that you want to ask? Are they not applicable? I, th I think we've kind of pretty much covered a, a huge amount of ground here okay. from an editor's standpoint. Yeah, yeah, um, enough. So, do you want to go out to the field at all? I'd love to go out to the okay. field. Okay. Well, um, let, let's just wrap it up. Uh, Mark Levick. Uh, a research soil scientist here in Mandan, North Dakota. It's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, I, once again, a learning experience. This whole experience for me has been learning. But uh, I look forward to going out into the field and, and seeing what you've got to show us. All right, let's go dig a hole, right? Let's go dig a hole. Thank <laughs> <All right>. you. <laughs>I might have mentioned this earlier. Well, what did you think of the podcast? I thought it was great. He, honestly, he covers so many different topics, but at the same time, they're all so interconnected that there's a lot to digest and a lot to take away. Yeah. Did you notice he goes, hmm, okay, there's a paper by so-and-so. <laughs> and well, he, I, and I appreciate how much he really, you can tell when you ask him a question, he yeah. really takes the time to give you the real answer to it. Yeah, yeah. So that that was interesting. I he 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 knows a lot of the literature, so that was I, I appreciated that. I think one of the, th the last things I wanted to do comment about um, North Dakota and, and places like like Bismarck is is you know the Dakotas experience such extremes, especially when you go out west. You know, extreme heat, extreme cold, lots and lots of drought, um, and you know, it's interesting that so much innovation comes from places where there are these extremes. And you might have heard Mark allude to that. And, and we've seen that uh, where, where, where farmers really need to hack it when things get tough. You know, um, they, they get real innovative. And this whole idea of making your soils more resilient to yeah. shocks, heat, cold, weather extremes... That seems to be quite the catchword now, and kind of cool to to speak to someone like Mark already in 2013, who was talking about this. Like I said, soil health—you know—he was into diversity and soil health before it was really cool. Yeah, well, and if you're going to farm efficiently and effectively year in and year out in that location, you're definitely going to benefit from soil resiliency. Absolutely. Well, all right. We hope you enjoyed this two-part series with Dr. Mark Liebig. I'm Barrett Self. And I'm Buzz Clute. And we will catch you next time on the Plug and Plant Podcast.